You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Darshan Talks. I'm your host, Darshan Kulkarni. It's my mission to help you trust the products you depend on. So as you know, I'm an attorney, I'm a pharmacist, and I advise companies with FDA-regulated products. So if you have a question about drugs, you think about devices, you consider cannabis, or you obsess over pharmacy, this is the podcast for you. Um, I do have to say that both my guests and I are, are both pharmacists, so this is not clinical advice. I'm a lawyer. This is not legal advice. It's educational. So uh, I do these podcasts because they're a lot of fun. I get to talk to really smart people like my guests today, and I find myself learning something new each time. So um, if you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe. Uh, if you think other people would benefit, please share. If you think that um, there are some good conversations happening and you, ha- you want to contribute, please uh, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you want to find me, you can always find me on Twitter um, as Darshan Talks, or just go to our website at darshantalks.com. Uh, today's podcast is going to be about, well, I, I was going to say that, that today's podcast is going to be about patient centricity and the do's and the don'ts, and we may very well get into it. But what I'm really excited about is the fact that we're going to take a multi-stakeholder conversation, an angle, an aspect of this. So that should be a lot of fun. So if you are in patient centricity, if you're in clinical trials, if you're in marketing, if you're in uh, medical affairs, any of those things, you're probably impacted. And uh, you should probably care about today's discussion. Our guest today is this is a stakeholder experience lead at Otsuka. I do want to uh, clarify that she does not necessarily represent the opinions of Otsuka, um, but these are her personal opinions. And that is a little scroll that explains that exact same thing. Um, our guest for today found on LinkedIn, and she can also be found at brahmit.divine at gmail.com. Um, so our guest for today, Erica Devine. Hey, Erica. Hey, Darshan. How are you? I'm excited. Every time I get to talk to you, I'm excited because I learn something new each time and you are fascinating. So there's that. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you. You're going to make me blush here. <laughs> uh, I, it's true. Um, so so let's let's talk a little bit first. Let's let's kind of um, start with something you were doing and you explained that you were working on, which is this idea of patient benchmarking. Uh, patient experience benchmarking and and how that feeds into the um, into the journey and doing a journey map. So so could you talk a little bit about what is the patient experience journey mapping? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, journey mapping is not not a new concept. I mean, mapping is done in many many different markets. Definitely done in pharma. It's been done in many other organizations that I have worked in. Um, there's really different types of mapping. So this is probably one of those things that um, sometimes they they kind of get muddled together. But you know, there are different types of mapping serve different types of purposes. So there's mapping that really tracks what I would call activities. You know, that tells us what is happening with patients. So really, it would look at behaviors like how often somebody calls a call center, or maybe it'll tell you what volume of patients go to your website instead of going through, you know, a call center for information or something like that. So it really tracks activities. There's also what I would call almost product mapping. So, you know, it's really putting 
the product at the center and then really understanding how the product kind of inserts throughout different points within that treatment journey for the patient. So, you know, you see, it, again, they're all great. They're all great types of mapping. But the one part I think that sometimes we're missing is the experience mapping. So while we do a lot of mapping to understand process, product mapping and activity mapping, we don't always understand the why somebody is doing something. So, you know, I think there's also this whole part, what, what is leading to the behaviors? What is the emotional component somebody is experiencing as they go through not only their daily life living with a condition, but also when they come into contact with you or your organization. So I think um, one of those big things from a patient-centric or even a human-centric um, component is really understanding what is their experience with us. So, you know, um, I think gives us a whole different view through the lens on how we are really delivering on these, um, you know, on these opportunities to better serve patients, caregivers, and of course, other stakeholders within that, that paradigm. So, so let, let's, let's make it simpler. Um, when should I be considering doing a journey map? Because it sounds like it can be used from a variety of things, but when does it rise to the threshold of, okay, you know what, let's take a step back and journey map. When, when does that make sense? So I think it's something you should always be doing. And the other part of this too, and I think not to, to make a mistake to understand that this is like a one-time thing, like you put together a map and then that, that holds true throughout you know, perpetuity. No, this is something you have to really revisit often. And I think any industry, whether you're in pharmaceuticals, whether you're in any other type of industry that serves customers, patients, or, or any end user, you really have to have a, a fundamental understanding one of what are the touch points that those patients are walking through um, as far as their interactions with your organization but also from a holistic standpoint, what else is going on with a majority of your types of customers that even drive them to you? What else happens within their ecosystem in addition to their interactions with you? And how do they feel about it? And how does that directly play into how they perceive your brand? How does that play into how they perceive trust with your organization. So, you know, again, I don't think this is a, it, it's not a finite type of thing. And the other part that I think is really important and that somebody, it, it kind of dawned on me when I heard somebody say this, a map is the artifact. So the map is the visual representation of that experience. It makes it easier to convey that to others within the organization. But what's more important is really the process that gets you there to create the artifact. So I think really looking at the methodology that you're using to capture that experience is critical to, to making sure that you are being representative of your end user and also that, you know, you're not missing the boat on some certain things because you're not asking the right questions or you're not sampling enough people. I'm hearing you say is that the, the important part of this is it's a continuous process and don't get caught up in the final product, which is great. It tells you where things are, but in many ways, it's just a snapshot of where where you are in the process and and how in this specific instance the patient engages with your product. Now, one of the things that um, that I think about 
is this idea that um, we we um, we're trying to get into patient centricity, but and, and patient engagement. The problem with that process is the patient's the core of everything we do. So if you start doing a journey map, um, it would be so big, so unwieldy. So do you do you go? It's important to look at it, the five hundred thousand foot view, or is it more important to look at little chunks and just look at each one of those individually? And what are the what is the impact of each? Yeah. So I think if you go too high level you are, it's, it's not really going to tell you anything actionable. So I think you do have to narrow it down a bit to decide what are those key critical elements you have the most influence and ability to impact. So, you know, I think you do have to recognize to a degree as an organization that you can't be great at everything, but there are certain differentiating factors that you know, are non-negotiable. You're going to have to, you're going to have to deliver a seamless and fantastic experience. And so I think, you know, if I'm looking at this, you know, I'm looking at kind of those things where, you know, not only is it potentially a direct interaction and looking at those touch points throughout, but also are they, are they areas where we have an ability to make a change? And so, you know, maybe that's where you kind of start, but then you grow from there. So I think it starts to kind of, kind of starts to spiral out because you, whatever you come out with, with that artifact and that process is going to inform certain things that you need to dive into a little bit more deeply. And those tend to not only stay within one function area of, of an organization, it tends to impact many. And so you really get to see that ripple down effect as well. And I think it also really enhances collaboration across different function areas with the common goal of really delivering an optimal experience. So, so you're talking about this idea of, um, seeing the downstream effects and you start from a, from a, maybe not a 500,000 foot view, maybe you start with a 50,000 foot view and that, that's, that helps identify some key processes. But I, I imagine that it's, it's like any other map, which is what do you choose to focus on? So in that um, you, what, what I heard you talk about is the ramifications on the different people involved, the different groups involved. And that's great. But I'm just thinking from a, clinical trial perspective, that is such a massive undertaking. But you tell me then I'm going to do the same thing in promotional engagement. I'm going to do the same thing in non-promotional engagement. And I'm going to do the same thing in the pieces that connect each of those. Each one of those is a Herculean task, the more I think about it. Um, and it, it it risks what I what I'm hearing you talk what I hear you talk about. It. To me, it risks becoming one of those congressional inquiries, which is which just takes decades to, to go through, yeah. and at the end of it, it's out of date from when you started. So, yeah. so how do you how do you tackle it at a practical perspective? Something that is munchable, that is I love that term right now actually munchable. Uh, <laughs> something that is munchable, something that addresses. Um, the current need, and yet is useful for addressing future needs? That is a great question. And I think that that is, uh, that is the challenge that we are all faced with. So, you know, how do you keep it? How do you keep it relevant? How do you maintain it? 
you know, there's a whole other kind of school of thought around patient experience management, which also heavily leverages digital capabilities. So a lot of these things that you're doing become automated and are actionable and are done in real time. And I think, you know, different organizations are in different um, different points in that journey as far as how technologically capable they are in order to do those certain things. I think that for everybody though that that would be the that would be the the end goal right so you you really can't do it um and have something that stays evergreen unless you are leveraging your digital capabilities and using a lot of that quantitative data and marrying that with some of that qualitative data that you're putting together for perhaps your mapping artifact. Um, but again, I, I would go back to the fact that you, you can't eat the elephant all at one time. And maybe this also kind of gets into another area where I think that you, you have to pilot things to a degree. I mean, you don't want to do some massive rollout until you've kind of tested the waters. And I think piloting gives you the opportunity to be able to get something up and running quickly, but then you can learn from it and then decide how you can scale up um, moving forward. And sometimes that does require invest investment that requires commitment into other areas that may or may not exist today within an organization. So I think you have to start somewhere. And so for, for us and, and others, I think, you know, pharma as a, as a whole, we haven't done probably our due diligence as far as understanding experience. We tend to look at activity and we tend to look at business metrics and how it impacts the business's bottom line. But there's this whole middle window that we, we really haven't even scratched the surface on. So I think it's probably going to sound somewhat trite, but you got anything is better than probably what we're doing now, which is, you know, asking them, <laughs> asking them how they feel and what is their experience and then seeing how that grows and evolves. So I'm going to ask a, a pretty basic question, which is, and I don't want to know specifically how, how it's done in your company or anything, because that's not the point. But I imagine that there are two different approaches to this, at least. The one approach, and I, uh, the one approach is, we're curious about what's happening with our patients, and we want to understand what's going on, and that's almost a uh, proactive, but a difficult beast to tackle because there's no focus. It's just I, I just I'm just curious. Um, the the alternative is uh, management comes out and says we have this problem and the problem might be something as similar to patients are not picking up medications that were filled for them yeah. and and address why is that happening and now you have a goal and you're trying to backtrack and journey map from there in your experience what is more common i would say it's probably the latter we okay. tend to be very reactive um and i i see this in pharma i see it in other organizations too you have the problem and then you try to figure out how you're going to solve it. But, you know, getting into a whole other topic of discussion, which I'm sure, you know, we don't really have the time to delve into today is really this whole leveraging of AI and predictive analytics and machine learning. You know, all of us want to get to a point where we're not just putting out fires anymore, but we're actually troubleshooting the issues before they arise. So, you know, I would hope, 
I would hope that the the end goal here is that we're not we're not just chasing our tails, so to speak, and trying to kind of put the fires out as they come, but really as we start to uncover what's happening with these patients or caregivers or other stakeholders in that ecosystem, we can better understand what what challenges them, you know, what vexes them, what parts in the process can we make a lot better. Some could be a very simple tweak that we're just missing. Others could be an enormous lift that is just like, does it make sense to try to get that extra 2% when you have to put 120% of your resources into doing it? So I look at it as a foundation to understand a little bit better as to where you want to spend your energy to help you inform the certain, you know, programs you either stop, maybe you keep them going, maybe you enhance them, or the gaps that we're not even meeting um, that we didn't know existed before. So again, I think it's a launching point. And I also think that, you know, I, I thought it was interesting you said, Darshan, like you just kind of is it really you put it together because you're just curious? And I think curiosity is part of it. Sure, we we definitely understand that we need to better understand and walk in the shoes of our patients as it as they live through their conditions and their environments. But if you're not taking ownership, like you have to, if you're going to ask a question, for instance, in a survey, you better make sure that you're also having somebody that's owning the feedback from that question and is closing the loop with your, you know, respondent. So, you know, it's, I think people get fatigued with surveys and other types of quantitative methods because they put their answers out there and then nothing really comes of it. And so you lose trust in people and they stop responding because they're like, well, what good does it do me to answer this survey if nobody's going to fix the issues. So I think you have to be committed to really taking it full circle too. And again, I think that goes back to you can't, you can't eat the elephant all at one time, because if you do, you're, you're just biting off more than you can chew. And then you're not really taking the full responsibility to, to take correctional, you know, correction um, for those specific problem points. So yes, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. It's not an easy task. And the other thing is too, organizations are structured differently. Some have chief patient officers in their executive leadership that really is responsible specifically for patient experience or end user experience. Some pepper it throughout their organizations where everybody is kind of tasked with being a chief patient officer and really being able to um, put patients first and really realize that they are the end user and their input matters. Um, it's essential to being able to meet their needs. So it's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a new school of thought. I think it's been, I think there's been an appetite to get this right, but I think the methods by which we roll it out hasn't totally been flushed out just yet especially in pharma i would say there are like a hundred directions we can take this conversation <laughs> i'm trying to sort of pull myself together i mean it's delicious almost to go after the ai predictive analytics uh, machine learning direction but it's just too easy uh, let's 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 sort of keep at the basics a little bit so so you have if, if you're going to do a journey map 
Could you describe the process in general, like a 50,000 foot view level of what that looks like? Where do you start? How do you identify what the goals are and, and kind of that process that a little bit? Sure, sure. I mean, I would probably look across and it depends on how large the organization is. But, you know, I mean, many start with their own function areas. Um, I think it always makes most sense to really get a, a, a discovery or an understanding generally across the organization, if you can pull the right people together to understand how often or how many times they're really touching or creating a direct interaction. So I would consider that a touch point. If you can understand where, you know, the majority of your touch points fall within an organization, I think that that sounds like a good place to start. Um, you also want to look at how much influence, oops, go ahead. Because you're right. That is an amazing place to go. But what, let's just discuss uh, journey mapping for patients though. Because when you start yep. saying that, do you only look at field forces and go, this is where you connect to the patient and that's a touch point. Or do you look at, for example, legal who will never likely meet the patient, but everything that gets signed needs to be run by them. And when you start doing that, that the complexity level increases exponentially. So yeah. how do you decide what the key stakeholders are? Like, is it from let's first decide what the goal is. And then once we have the goal, pull that in and then kind of go from there. Or is it, we just want to get, a data dump and then sift through it. Yeah, I think you do have to do some discovery first. You have to really understand what what is your organization done so far? Is there certain themes that are rising to the top that have been continuously a problem? So while it may not have come directly from a patient, for instance, or a caregiver, you might be hearing it from your field folks that are liaising with doctor's offices or other stakeholders within that within that ecosystem that are saying, we know this is a problem. So I would say if you if you have a glaring issue, yes, it absolutely makes sense to to not keep those separated. You have to be also looking at um, you know systems that haven't been working historically. But I also think you have to. I think really in in my experience across organizations that I worked in, even my pretty much my whole career where there is so many different areas that touch different parts of that journey or support the journey. So like, for instance, legal, I think this is a really interesting, let's just take them for example. No, the legal team does not necessarily interface with patients or caregivers or whatever directly, but they have a huge say in how the organization operates compliantly and a trust in a trustworthy fashion with those individuals. So if I was looking at the legal team, for instance, they absolutely should have access to any type of experience mapping from a patient because you can always take several degrees of separation back to somebody. So let's just say you have a a process where legal is like, nope, this is the we've always done it this way. Pharma's never ever tried that before we're just it's a blanketed no if they understood though that you know maybe there's others that are working in a certain fashion that works or there's a better way that we can ser be serving a patient for instance and it could i mean just taking it to marketing materials or educational materials that you're putting out if it takes too long to get educational materials out to a healthcare provider or a patient that really is asking for it they're saying we need this information but 
for whatever reason, our process is too onerous through the legal side of life, then there's there's opportunity there to also enhance those services. So I think um, it goes back to, I, I think patient centricity, I think that that um, mindset and that culture, go it has to go through the entire organization because the organization is, is an organism. That's kind of how I look at it. If one part doesn't work, the other part doesn't work. And then the other part doesn't work. And so when it gets to the field folks or those that are liaising directly with those patients, they can't do their job because they don't have the internal infrastructure to support them to do that work. So I think it's also a mindset shift too. Um, and I'm not sure if that totally answered your question, Darshan. So if we need to go back to the original question, I'm fine with that. But yeah, I think um, it you have to socialize those types of experiences to the entire organization, whether you have direct touch points or not. But you have to start probably where you are having the most direct touch points because that's where you're going to get the most granular feedback. And then you can start kind of back backing into the other types of departments that have huge influence on how that experience is rolled out. And we're, as you know, we're well past time, but I'm going to ask this question anyways before we, we kind of let this issue uh, go to bed, uh, go to rest, whatever. Um, they say a camel is a horse designed by committee. So, <laughs> so if that's true, at what point have you got too many stakeholders? It's, it's, a, it's a valid question, and I don't know that I have an exact answer for that. Um, I, I think, you know, it, I really don't know that I have a direct answer for that. I think you you kind of feel it as you go. And, you know, probably in my experience, and this happens a lot, um, you know, you've got a lot of people that you pull to the table, but then as you start to kind of work through it, you realize certain people are like, I don't know that my time is best su suited here. Like, I don't know that you really need me in this part of, of the work that you're doing. And so I think sometimes it just kind of organically works itself out where some are, you know, you got to pull those subject matter experts in when the timing is right. And you don't always get it right the first time. We have lots of meetings where, you know, we've got a lot of people in the room and it's, <laughs> it's like, are they really needed? Probably not. Or you're even one of those people where you're like, why am I here? Um, maybe I don't need to be here. So I think it's, it's the nature of the beast that you're going to, sometimes pull too many or not enough. And you start yeah. to learn that you have to actually seek out other wisdom and advice within the organization. That's a great, great sort of place to end it. Um, so as you know, I'm gonna ask you, uh, well, four questions. The first okay. question is really, how can people find you? Which is, as I've posted on the screen, uh, brummit.divine at gmail.com. Uh, and they can also find you on LinkedIn. Is that fair? Yep, absolutely. Excellent. Um, my next question, based on what we discussed, what would you like to ask the audience? I would like to ask the audience, what, what do they expect from their experience with, uh, with pharma? You know, I know trust is a huge issue with, with, with patients, caregivers, and pharmaceutical companies. What would help make them feel like, you know, pharma isn't necessarily the big bad wolf, but that we really are, we are really trying to make positive change within uh, individuals that are living with certain conditions. So 
I'd say, how do we build trust? How do we do that better? I love that question. And I actually interview trust experts on the, on the live stream all the time. So stay tuned. Maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to ask that question a little love bit it. more. The last time I actually asked this question, um, one of the experts, world renowned, um, asked the question, trust in what? There, there's so many issues that pharma has. Mm. Where do we start <laughs> the question of where do you, why you should trust me? I, I did a paper on trust. And um, one of the things that was um, very, very interesting to me um, was the idea that if there's distrust, adding, doing more trustworthy things don't solve the problem, which was extremely enlightening for me because I thought it was, well, you don't trust me. Well, here are 50 reasons to trust me. That's not how it works. You've got to first go back and address that distrust first. And until you do that, the rest of it doesn't work, Um, which was very, very enlightening for me. Uh, And we can have a whole offline discussion about this as well. Um, But but um, I I think I I think that for me as a so I, I just literally in the last day got diagnosed with diabetes and I'm kind of going, oh, this is going to be fun. Okay. But um, the, the, the experience that I had out of this is um, a lot of the groups that are involved um, are very, very excited about having programs in place. The problem is that the programs don't communicate. So you're making 50 phone calls to figure out what's out there. And they're all trying to be helpful without a doubt. Yeah. But if the, it would be so much easier as a patient to go, here's a list of resources. You call this one place and they will pull from all the different places. The closest yeah. thing to that is, um, is something like GoodRx. But even that isn't a, a total solution because yeah. they aren't trying to address, they're trying to sell you something else as well, which I don't have a problem with inherently. I just wish that, there was one complete resource. So that would be, and that I think yeah. would help address, like, for example, if, I, if I'm trying to find insulin or I'm trying to find metformin, is there a place I can go to and go, um, which is the right insulin that my, that my, uh, uh, my, that my insurance would cover? And you'd think yeah. calling the insurance would be helpful, yeah. but, um, but they basically didn't know. And they're like, we'll get back to you in two or three days. Well, that's not very helpful. <laughs> No, not, no. I mean, it doesn't make for a seamless experience at all. And this is actually really interesting. Um, But again, I think it goes to the, to the point too. So you're almost taking it a step further back, right, Dorshan, because you're trying to figure out, well, what is even the best type of insulin for me? So we're really looking at even the clinical questions that patients have about the treatments they're getting. And then you've got kind of my purview, which is, once the clinical conviction is determined, so doctor, prescriber says, this is absolutely the right treatment for you. My lane is, how do we get that to you as easily as possible so that you know everything out there that we offer in a nice, succinct way, <laughs> and that you know we can make that process of obtaining it as seamless as possible. So it's almost like these two steps, and, and yeah. where I sit in patient support, we can't I can't start talking about it. I can't talk about our products until that clinical conviction is made. So but, other parts in the organization can. Just- which I think is fascinating because um, from my perspective, 
I'm going, all my doctor, my doctor knows I'm a pharmacist. So he goes, um, look, all I want you to be on is a long acting insulin. Like, I don't really care which one, pick one as whatever's cheapest for you. Um, (laughs) And so I know that I just need to pick one and go from there because I'm going to have to titrate. That's great. But until that happens, I think that um, resources, and maybe it's it's it has to be the insurance company that that jumps in. Maybe yeah. it has to yeah. be um, a third party of some kind. Maybe it's the pharmacy. Everyone's kind of like not my problem right now, and and that's that that is a little bit of a, of a tough nut to crack. Not to say that I, I won't figure it out. Everyone does, but it's it's more complicated. For example, another easy thing would be having a website on how do you uh, get a pinprick and, and get oh. check your blood sugars. Yes, I know how to do it. I've, I've seen it done a million times in the pharmacy, but I've never done one. So, no. yep. so having a, here are all the 50 questions you're gonna have to answer the first day yep. um, would be wonderful. No, that's, that's great. I think that gets into a great topic too. Like even that conversation guide, you know, lots of organizations, I know we have one to help patients talk through and be prepared for those appointments. Like what types of questions do they want to ask? But you said something I think is really, really important. And I think our healthcare system is kind of set up in such a way that it does make it this almost this assembly line, like passing of the baton. And so you're right. Everybody is so everybody is so focused in on their lanes and in some ways have to be only focused in on their lanes that it's almost like, well, when you get to me, then we'll, we'll address our part of it. But there's really a fragmentation that exists and you're a pharmacist, Thurshawn. So think about, you know, I think about someone who's living with a serious mental illness, you know, somebody that may not have resources of support around them. How hard is it for someone to navigate that whole process and even just find the resources that are even out there. So there's a lot of work to be done. There's no doubt about that. It's it's not ideal by any means. And let's be honest. In my case, it's diabetes. One of the it's one of the biggest uh, diseases out there. So there's tons of data. If I really start looking, I'm just trying to avoid looking. What happens if it's a rare disease state? There's nothing. Yeah. Yep. Um, so. Point. So that's a great sort of uh, discussion. So we can have that discussion at some other point. Um, second question, well, third, really. Um, what is something you've learned in the last um, month that I think the guests, that you think the guests might be surprised to hear about? <laughs> so I was watching a show. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or not. It's called Alone. And they literally, it's kind of like a naked and afraid type show, but they basically take somebody and they drop them in the middle of like, the worst conditions in Vancouver and they're completely alone and they have to build their shelter and they have to find food and basically survive. And it's really, they just go, there's 10 people that get dropped and then it just basically whoever else out survives all the rest wins. Okay. So one of the things I was like, well, they're, you know, how do you make fire? Like these people all, you know, they, they, they can use one of those little flint sticks, but I was like, that's kind of cheating. So I got a bow drill. I got a bow drill, which is basically a stick mechanism that, you know, creates friction to build a fire. And I successfully was able to get a fire started with a bow drill. So my next, so my next evolution with this is that I got to build my own bow drill. So I bought a bow drill. That's kind of cheating. 
but it's still hard. It's still really, really hard to start a fire with friction. But if I could create, like, if I can actually build my own bow drill from like wood outside, then I would be like, I can, I can seriously make fire. That is the best story <laughs> I've heard. That's awesome. That is really, really cool. I, I've always wondered, like, um, I've, I've wondered and I've seen a weird part of this. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. Um, what, the, a similar corollary to that is, well, I wonder if you could do the same thing, but instead of putting them out in the, in the jungle, I wonder if you can just put them out in West Philadelphia and, and what would actually happen. If, <laughs> they could they try this stuff out, though. And, and right. what's really interesting with Alone is they look at the different regions, so not everybody gets dumped in the same area, but some might be really, really far from a water source but yet they have a flat land to build a shelter. But then somebody else might be on a 90 degree angle. So building a shelter just stinks, but they can walk right down the hill and they can get to a stream. So I was thinking that would be a massive social experiment to be able to do it in like a major city and like a certain aspect of a city and be like, here, survive out here as long as you can. Um, There's another show, I can't remember the name of the show, but it was about this billionaire, a real billionaire, who was um, who was taken from his house in Florida, I guess, and put in the middle of rural Pennsylvania. And he had to figure out in 90 days how to go from literally having $100 and a car to a million dollars. And he got pretty close. He got to like 750 I heard. So that was amazing to me. So same concept, but different iterations. Um, what is something in the last week that's made you happy? So I think we were talking a little bit about this, but I went on vacation and it was awesome. In fact, my sister and my nephew also came with us for the first time and I have two kids myself. So it was the most exciting thing to them to know that their cousin was going to be along for the ride because, um, you know, for them, the more the merrier. It was like having their best friend tag along. So it was a great vacation as you know, they're, they never last long enough, but I, I could I could seriously live out on the beach. If we're going back to the alone concept, if they could just dump me on a beach <laughs> with like plenty of crabs and like those little limpet like things for me to eat, I would, I, I wonder if I could live pretty, pretty long out there. I, I, I love the idea of it where you go, wait, so the idea is I have to do better. I'm just going to stick with this level. I'm just going to eat the crabs and live here. They're like, that's not the point of the show. Nope, I'm good. I'd be a very boring watch. They would be like, okay, this they got to get this girl off the camera. Well, this was a lot of fun, Erica. I can't wait to have you on again. Um, would you be interested in coming back? Absolutely. I always love our discussions. Thank you. Um, and everyone, um, just for people who didn't catch it the first time, you can reach her at brummit.divine at gmail.com and, or find her on LinkedIn. So thank you, Erica. This was wonderful. Thanks, Darshan.